This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. The multi-billion dollar deal that would merge two of the most powerful business families in Canada, Rogers Communications has agreed to buy its rival, Shaw Communications, and red flags are already being raised about what it could mean for consumers. The transaction is valued at $26 billion, including $6 billion in debt. Rogers and Shaw carved up Canada when it came to cable and internet service. Rogers operated in the east and Shaw in the west, but they have been fierce combatants in the wireless sector. The proposed Rogers-Shaw merger has succeeded in placing Canada's competition law and policy back into the spotlight as consumers frustrated by high wireless prices and a market that many believe already suffers from insufficient competition, face the prospect of even less competition should the deal be approved. Consumers aren't the only ones with competition policy on their minds, as governments are also increasingly thinking about the implications of the market power of large technology companies. Vast Bednar, Anna Quarry, and Robin Shaban recently conducted an extensive study for the Ministry of Innovation, Science, and Industry on competition in data-driven markets in Canada. VAST, the executive director of McMaster University's Master of Public Policy in Digital Society program, Anna, a recent graduate of McGill University Faculty of Law, and Robin, co-founder and senior economist at Vivic Research, join me on this week's podcast to discuss their study, the intersection between competition and digital and telecom policy, and their proposed reforms to reshape Canadian competition law. Vass, Anna, and Robin, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. Really glad that you joined. And thank you for the, the great work that you've been doing on the state of competition law in Canada. You know, I think it's really important and is, has definitely succeeded in sparking some real discussion, which is which is fabulous. You know, I thought I'd start with a comment that Vass made in a piece for policy options, in which you noted that competition policy means very little to the average Canadian. I think that's probably right. It's a bit discouraging, but it's probably right. Uh, right. So why don't you make uh, your elevator pitch, so to speak, on why competition law does matter and why do you think that it gets so little mindshare for so many? Oh, I absolutely think it matters. And I think it takes up mindshare, but not under that umbrella, right? Consumers, people care about price. They care about choice. They care about innovation. And especially now in this moment, of inflation, I think we're seeing consumers be, you know, even more price conscious than before. So with that baseline, I do think people care about competition in Canada. Do they necessarily make the connections back to this thing called the Competition Act? Not necessarily, but I think it's all about how we talk about competition. And we've had a lot of fun over the past year, year and a half, uh, using, creating different little case studies or, or chatting about competition in something like uh, regs to riches, a newsletter to kind of bring more people in and invite more voices to think and talk about competition. Um, and perhaps it's wrong of me to say that the average Canadian doesn't care about competition because there was a recent Ipsos poll that showed 88%. That seems like a whole lot of uh, Canadians say that we need more competition and that it's too easy for big businesses to take advantage of consumers. Um, and this is why we're challenging regulators to think more about data and, and price gouging and 
you know, potentially discriminatory uh, pricing behaviors like personalized or algorithmic pricing. Um, that's also making the marketplace more opaque for people when they're shopping, whether it's for everyday, you know, groceries or paper towels or um, trying to find love on Tinder. Fair enough. And we'll get into to some of those issues uh, a little later, particularly mm-hmm. love to talk about uh, telecom and some of the digital services where some of those algorithmic issues pop up. Uh, but before we do that, Anna, can you can you walk us through, in a sense, Canadian Competition Law 101? What does the what does the law do, and uh, who administers it? Yeah, so the Canadian Competition Law really started really about a hundred years ago, and Lena Khan has a great article on this that she published while she was a law student about the political and historical roots of competition law generally, because competition law is not just a Canadian concept, it's an international concept. And competition law started during the Gilded Age at a time where people held vast economic power and political power. And we might argue that that's still happening today. The way that competition law is regulated in Canada is through the Competition Act. And the act itself gives us a sense of what its purpose is. Although, the purpose itself might not always translate into what actually happens on the ground when the act is administered. The purpose of the act is really anything from maintaining and encouraging competition, whatever that really means to us, I think as a society, to having a competitive marketplace, to efficiency, adaptability. And we're also concerned about the Canadian place in a global marketplace. And the final part of the act that I think we are really concerned about is competitive prices and choices for consumers. And that really speaks of the consumer protection element of uh, the Competition Act, which is sometimes under-evaluated in Canada. The Competition Act does all, tries to achieve all of those goals and to regulate all of those goals by regulating specific business behaviors. So those can be things like mergers of dominant firms or abuse of dominance by firms that hold large market powers or things like lessening of competition through anti-competitive agreements. So the point of regulating all of those types of business conduct is to try to achieve a healthy and competitive marketplace. And in terms of who does that, it's mainly the Competition Bureau in Canada. So they have a power to investigate and to begin and lead investigations uh, against companies or to marketplaces or specific products in the market. They review mergers and then they take cases to the competition tribunal, which is a specialized tribunal that decides competition cases. And finally, for really, really outrageous types of violations of criminal provisions, the attorney general would take those cases on. And we have some limited scope for people themselves to start class actions. And that's another way that competition is regulated in Canada. Okay, that's a pretty excellent uh, 101. Covers a pretty broad range of things, and you did a nice job of highlighting who's involved. You know, Robin, you've been outspoken in raising concerns about the the state, the current state of competition law, uh, arguing that it has some pretty significant shortcomings, especially when contrasted with some of the rules elsewhere. Anna just noted that it, you know we don't exist as an island here, where this is part of a broader global framework. You've often taken a look at what we have compared to others, and and argued that there are some real shortcomings. What are some of your concerns? Yeah, so one of the biggest areas where we diverge from uh, other countries is what's called the efficiencies defense. And this defense applies to uh, mergers and acquisitions, but also um, competitor agreements that are not criminal in nature. So in a nutshell, what the defense allows is it allows mergers that 
are harmful to competition if they create sufficient cost savings. So what this looks like is um, a merger that happened in the 1990s between Superior Propane and ICG Propane. And this is one of the most detailed examples we have of the efficiencies defense at play. And the defense allowed for this merger to take place and create literal monopolies in several communities across Canada. And when I say literal monopolies, I mean 100% market share or 98% market share. And uh, these mergers were allowed to take place because the firms uh, wanted to lay off a bunch of people. So they laid off about 200 people and this created a lot of cost savings. Uh, in addition, there was a lot of uh, redundant infrastructure because both of these companies were in the business of retail, dis um, the distribution of propane and the retail sale of propane. So because it's a really infrastructure heavy business, cutting that overlap creates cost savings. So by cutting these costs, which translate into job losses, um, it allowed the firms to effectively argue this efficiencies defense and allow for this merger to take place. And the merger has been evoked, or rather the efficiencies defense has been evoked uh, several times uh, since then. And in fact, many of those times have been by uh, superior propane in its other acquisitions. And uh, this approach to merger regulation is really out of step with what we see in other major jurisdictions. So in the United States, for example, we have an efficiencies defense, but this defense doesn't allow for this trade-off between competition and cost savings. So, and in fact, there's controversy in the United States as to whether that type of efficiencies defense, which is milder in nature, actually is doing more harm than good. So um, there are other countries in the world that have an efficiencies defense like Canada, but they are very small economies like Barbados, for example. Um, and this efficiencies defense was argued to, or advocates in Canada argue for the efficiencies defense because they argue that Canada is a small economy and we need to allow these businesses to get big and scale up so that we can compete internationally. But I think that idea of creating national champions is becoming increasingly out of date. So that's a, a huge uh, hole in our competition law. And I bring it up because I think if a lot of people understood that, uh, they'd be pretty shocked. Uh, and I think it points to a, a logic and a rationale that underpins our current competition law that we need to reevaluate. Another area in our law that is really deficient is the way in which we evaluate anti-competitive conduct. So what I mean by that is um, in the case of an abuse of dominance or a merger or uh, other aspects of the act that we call civil provisions. So these are non-criminal acts, they're civil. Um, anti-competitive conduct is tested um, by whether it creates a substantial lessening or prevention of competition. And what this means is that the commissioner needs to prove or show that there are effects of this anti-competitive conduct in the market. So for example, when it comes to mergers, um, it is not possible to make an argument that 
a merger is going to create a monopoly and this is inherently problematic. So what I mean by that is, you know, setting aside the whole efficiencies defense thing, um, you can't go to the tribunal and say, hey, these two companies are going to create a monopoly and we know that this is bad. So please let us block this merger. You actually need to show that on the basis of that monopoly, that there are negative effects of that monopoly that you have shown empirically. So it's this extra step that we need to take in order to show anti-competitiveness that is excessive in many cases. And again, highlights this um, sort of rationale that underpins our law, which is that you know regulation is bad, intervention in markets is bad, um, you know, let markets do their thing because they're naturally competitive. And I think this excessively high standard for evaluating conduct based on its effects, rather than the very like nature of that behavior itself, like you can look at some behaviors and see this is clearly bad. <laughs> this is bad for competition, right? We don't need to prove Econ 101 in a courtroom. Um, so this high standard, again, it points to like a philosophy that um, I think is really problematic. And the last thing I just wanted to touch on is that we have a huge gap when it comes to effectively applying competition law to labor markets. So um, the Competition Bureau has the power to evaluate mergers based on their impact on labor markets. But based on information we have available to us, there's no evidence that they've ever done this. And this isn't something that Canada is uniquely deficient in. I think other jurisdictions are starting to wake up to this. But when you look at um, a hero pay fiasco at the beginning of the pandemic where grocery store workers were uh, facing a cut in their wages based off of communications between grocery store companies, I think it really highlights um, how competition can impact workers as well. And not only does the Competition Bureau need to wake up to this, but also legislators and also to labor unions. We need more labor engagement in competition policy. Those are really interesting issues that suggest the kind of bigger is better approach, generally speaking, from a Canadian perspective, even um, if there are significant negative consequences for consumers. You know, you just referenced the, the need for labor unions and others to participate. It's striking to me that while there's an emphasis on bigger is better, let's say, from a competition policy perspective, one of the points I know that you've all been making is that the competition law enforcement community is actually pretty small. Um, feels like a pretty cozy one with respect to sort of a, a literally not quite a handful, but a relatively small number of big companies and uh, the representatives, largely their lawyers. Can you describe that current situation and, and how are the interests of some of these other groups, whether it's labor unions, consumers or small businesses represented in this process? I'll take a stab to kick us off and then maybe turn it to Robin. I mean, yeah, it's a cozy community. And on the one hand, maybe it makes sense that it's it's become very narrow in terms of uh, being dominated by lawyers and economists. I'll say we haven't always or exactly been welcome to the conversation, but we're we're happy to to be a part of it and expand it and stretch it and and test it and kick it a little bit. Um, and we sort of uh, in the fall kicked around seven reasons that we kind of lack capacity on on competition in Canada. Right, one, the commissioner lacks the I'll say intellectual independence 
to speak freely on matters of competition, right? The bureau's nested under ISED. This is kind of inherently a little bit of a conflict of interest. And I think that for the average person, they might expect. Um, and though we have a very bold, brave, vocal uh, commissioner right now, but they might expect um, this person to be speaking more or, you know, tweeting or have something, you know, have more of a presence on social media. So one, that can downplay the competition challenges uh, Canada has. Two, there's a basic literacy gap. That's a huge barrier to entry in the conversation, right? If you, if you don't feel equipped to look up what a market study is or, you know, don't fully appreciate a merger, well, you're kind of out of luck and you're going to be on the sidelines if you care about it at all. Um, an observation I feel comfortable sharing, public policy and, administ and administration programs graduate way too many people that have never been exposed to the basic mechanics of competition policy. That's solvable. Um, there's a general dearth of, of scholarship on competition issues in Canada compared to other jurisdictions. That's a little bit more of a kind of bow in my arrow or whatever, or shot at something because, you know, we just, we need more research and more independent scholarship to understand where we are in Canada and where, how we can do better. Um, and a lot of the existing expertise in Canada, um, both academic and otherwise, right, coming out of the Bureau has been privatized. And that's maybe part of the competition problem. We also lack strong and effective consumer advocacy groups. This sucks really bad for Canada. I can't emphasize that enough. Um, so, so much of what's deficient about Canada's competition law falls on, you know, the shoulders of everyday Canadians and in their pocketbooks and in their budgets. And if we don't have that, you know, grassroots ability for people to speak up and out, well, that's terrible. And then lastly, as to pick up on Chase, what uh, Robin's been pointing out and, and doing so effectively, you know, unions are failing to advocate at the intersection of labor and competition. That's a huge opportunity. So though Canada is a laggard overall, we have tons of opportunities to actually be a policy leader on really novel and important competition issues. And just because something is competition relevant doesn't mean it has to be dealt with through the Competition Act. We get that too. You can talk about competition. There's all these, this suite of complementary policy tools. And if Canada wants to be A, taken seriously on an international stage and also, you know, pay more than lip service to this topic, we're going to have to run a full core press. We're going to have to be creative and we're going to have to be comprehensive. Robert, I don't know if you want to chase chase anything of that. You're, you're so close, especially I feel being in Ottawa sometimes, so close to the, the competition community. I think that that was really comprehensive and to pick up on what you were saying about the privatization of expertise, I think that, that that is a huge theme. And I think that ties in too, Michael, about how you teed up this question, right? That at the end of the day, the community of competition policy expertise, it is very small and um, it's, it's tied closely with um, the legal community that serves businesses that are being investigated by the Bureau or are uh, going to the Bureau to complain about anti-competitive conduct in the market. So these lawyers, they, you know, they're typically working at Bay Street. And like I said before, they're, they're often uh, working for businesses that are being investigated by the Bureau or otherwise engaging with it. Uh, in the space, too, in this expertise bubble we have, we also have a lot of economists, and they're working in the space either as um, academics, working uh, on specific contracts, or they're 
consulting economists that are working with consulting firms, and they are supporting um, either the lawyers that are creating cases that go up against the bureau um, or are working as expert witnesses for the bureau. So the expertise in Canada, it's really part of this industry around competition law. And I think it's natural to flow from that a particular perspective of what competition law ought to be. And I think this shows up in the discourse that we hear today about competition policy um, and some of the current debates that we're having about competition law. I think another important facet to remember in all of this is that um, there at times is um, a lot of movement between the Competition Bureau and Bay Street. So um, you look at our two most recent commissioners of competition that have since left. Uh, they are now both working at Bay Street law firms, right? So there is this relationship, I think, between um, the Bureau and Bay Street that um, I think there's an open question as to whether we're okay with, with that, right? Um, and I also want to point out, and this is something that, um, you know, uh, detractors point out, you know, we recognize that Bay Street doesn't represent exclusively big business. And of course, there are like smaller and medium sized businesses that are also using these lawyer services. But I think it's also fair to say that there are, you know, a whole cache of businesses that are unable to access that level of legal advice and expertise. And I think that they are often missing in the competition policy conversation too. So um, when we have Bay Street potentially representing the views of, um, or putting forward views on competition law that may align with business, I think it is fair to look at those stances and see them as aligned with what their clients are interested in, in advocating for and seeing in competition law too. And I think that this also feeds into another kind of elephant in the room, which is um, just the role that different political interests play in competition policy. And I know that folks in the think tank space can like sometimes get their feathers ruffled at this point because there's a tension between putting out like straight shooting objective research and also playing in a space where we do have conflicting interests, right? The interests of business do not necessarily align with those of consumers, right? And, you know, there's also an interplay between consumers, workers, business, big business, small business. There's so many players in this space. And I think that what's critical is that we can't be blat like blatantly and willfully ignorant of these political tensions. So just pretending that they don't exist and sweeping them under the rug is not doing anyone any favors. We need to be making more of an effort to bring in diverse voices in order to have uh, a, a law that is anchored in democratic principles. And I would go so far as to say that our competition law today is, and the discourse around it is not based in democratic principles. That's a really fabulous foundation for what the, what the entire regulatory space looks like, not just the Bureau, but more broadly in terms of who's advising the Bureau, who participates in this, and, and why perhaps some of the outcomes that we get are what they are, given some of that participation. Why don't we, we shift to 
uh, a couple of the sectors that that really where there's a direct correlation, both to the kinds of things that that I tend to focus on on this podcast, and and that have have real implications from a competition uh, law perspective. You know, so in in recent years, we've seen mounting concern with the state of competition in the digital space, with companies like Amazon, Google, or Facebook slash Meta uh, playing obviously enormous roles in our economies, and and I think a lot of people wondering where the bureau is on these issues. Other countries do seem to have taken up this issue of competition and the digital economy. What are some of the kinds of things that we've been seeing on the global stage with respect to these kinds of concerns about competition in the digital space? We've definitely been seeing more movement coming from Europe on that. So the EU, for example, has had a couple of legislative changes, including the EU Digital Markets Act, which is soon coming into force, and it's in its final stages now. And generally what that does is regulate platforms that act as gatekeepers in digital markets. Um, So those are companies with significant impact that are an important get get gateway for both other companies, small businesses and consumers. Within the EU itself, Germany is one of the leaders and the UK is also following pretty closely. But in Germany, there's already been one law that has been passed looking called the Digital Competition Act that gives more power to their commissioner to investigate these types of issues. And the UK is currently undergoing also some review of their competition framework on the same types of issues. Their Competitions and Markets Authority has been um, pretty... um, creative in this area and they've supported these movements and have called for increased collaboration, especially between themselves and the the information commissioner. Other jurisdictions, there's also movement there. Australia is following closely as well with the review of their Competition Act. And in the U.S., we've seen sort of a suite of legislation that um, is aimed at digital market power and digital platforms at things like breaking up Facebook and uh, other big companies. And those are coming in small pieces of legislation. But I think the most important thing that's happening in the U.S. is really the enforcement activity that is taking place right now from the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, led by some progressive um, antitrust advocates who were advocates and now are leading the FTC. So I think that's been a really important change there. And we're going to see a lot of movement uh, in the U.S. in the in the months and years to come. Okay, so big shifts coming as a result of uh, particularly this, the shift with the Biden administration. So has Canada matched uh, what we see elsewhere, or at least ventured into some of these issues? And if, if not, do we have a sense of why not? I think we're definitely not matched. I think the report that we released recently is one of the only reports um, that has tried to tackle that issue of data-driven markets or digital markets in the Canadian economy. There need to be more market studies, I think, about what's happening here, what's happening in our economy and how we can address them. I think that there's going to be a lot of pushback that's going to come on not changing. And we have a review of the act going on, but um, whether that actually does anything to change our approach to digital markets will really depend on how the review goes and how successful advocates or consumer advocates really are pushing for the changes that we would want to see here. I think there's definitely more room for the Competition Bureau to take more of a lead. And they have said that we need to um, change our laws and change our regulatory framework. So hopefully we'll see Mm. that. And we haven't, you know, we haven't done absolutely nothing, but we've just done like one step above nothing. So um, we have a call out for, you know, hey, if anyone's ever been screwed over by Amazon, let us know. 
right? And the reason that, not that I'm being so colloquial, but the reason that the Bureau has that kind of call out is because we can't do market studies. So generally what we hear from people, you know, there is an expectation when there are, when there are these, you know, groundbreaking major antitrust cases, investigations, that they might be replicated or, or mimicked here. Now, we don't necessarily need to mimic those cases. If they're going to result in changes that kind of ripple everywhere, then, you know, that's a good deal for Canada. But if our law fundamentally interprets the outcomes of those cases differently, um, when these are digital issues are not something we can hide behind, you know, in terms of our geography or our population, then at the very least, legislators or politicians are going to have to be able to justify why Canada diverges. And I think that's an important aspect too. And if we want to stick with the status quo, all right, um, let's, let's rationalize and justify that status quo instead of saying, if we tinker or do anything, you know, too fast or with groupthink when it comes to competition law, we're going to, um, you know, ruin Canada's economy. The digital space is one area where more could be done. The other area where stuff is happening, in a sense, because it's the market is demanding a response from the various regulators in the spaces in the telecom area. And uh, as we record this just recently, Bell announced plans to take over a small regional Quebec-based ISP uh, that sparked uh, some interesting discussion from former from the former CRTC chair Jean-Pierre Blay, um, who talked about some of his concerns that that would have in the telecom space, and and even more the giant merger between Rogers and Shaw certainly still looms. We've seen some reports that uh, an industry committee that has studied this is is going to recommend at least some divestiture of assets. But uh, at least as we record this, we haven't seen that report yet, and of course we're still waiting for with the Bureau and uh, some others and the government itself has to say. So so how does the government, how does Canada more broadly, I suppose, address the competition implications of these kinds of telecom deals? And given the, the ongoing concern with the competitive environment of telecom in Canada, how do you think it should be addressing them? In order to effectively address some of these competition concerns in the telecom space, we need to I go back to some of the deficiencies in the act that we were talking about before, especially around um, merger review and how we evaluate anti-competitive conduct. And what I think is interesting about the latest developments in the telecom space is that uh, they're unfortunate, but I think there's silver linings in that. So I, at this stage of the game, especially with Roger Shaw, um, there's not a whole lot the Bureau can really do, right? The Bureau has the law it has, and the Bureau is going to enforce the law to the full extent. I, I have faith in that. Um, but we're stuck with the law we have, right? And I think if we look at the resolution of the Bell MTS merger that happened several years back now, I think we can see how this sort of thing will likely play out. Right. Hopefully it'll be better. But, um, you know, I think that's kind of what we can expect. So, you know, that that's the bad news. Right. But I think in that uh, unfortunate reality, there's also uh, opportunity for us to really show Canadians what we're missing when it comes to competition law and how important competition law is, because I think as people um, 
follow the case. And I think as we see the outcomes of it, uh, I think people are going to be more motivated than ever to uh, call on politicians to take a leadership role and make the reforms that we need in order to protect competition in that space. And I think that those changes could transcend to other industry areas as well, especially if those changes are happening through the mechanism of the Competition Act or competition legislation. You know, just I guess to respond to that, you know, we've had much of our conversation talking about how this has, this area has been dominated by fairly small numbers, fairly small cohort, let's say, of advisors and others and companies. And essentially what what you've just described is that, well, Rogers and Shaw saw the the Bell MTS playbook and figured they would play the exact same playbook since it's got since it got approved. And at this stage, your expectation is that that was a, a decent gamble on their part, and that's likely the same kind of outcome. You know, I guess the it begs the question: Why should we think it's going to be any different next time? You know, now so now we've had, yeah. uh, you know, now we've had you know some of the largest the largest communications companies in the country at a merge at a time when we've had successive governments. This isn't a, a partisan issue. Liberal and conservative both say that consumer pricing, wireless pricing, competition is a major issue, and yet we've seen a diminishment of competition in one case, and it sounds like quite possibly in another case, you know, where, where do we find the optimism, I guess, is, is the question to, to think that now we'll be different. Now the public will become engaged and somehow uh, the government will respond. My optimism comes from how pissed off people are going to be with this merger and how telecom and banking are these and airlines too, right? Are these, those are the main entry points for people to get into this competition conversation, whatever it is. Um, and, uh, should should people be optimistic? Is this sunshine, rainbows, and lollipops? Is there like a, a competition cloud that's going to, you know, suddenly Canada's going to have, have a, a comprehensive all-of-government approach? I mean, probably not. I think it's going to take people getting frustrated and demanding more of our of our political leaders and our legislators because the the feeling that we've had for a year as Canadians that this Roger Shaw deal everyone kind of knows it's a bad deal but it's always felt like it was a done deal and I think that's the worst part of it I think the fact of the matter is that um things aren't going to be better next time unless there's legislative reform so unless we make a change to the competition act that makes it such that mergers like this can't happen, um, there's not going to be anything different. And I mean, just to put a bit of context on this, like the Competition Act has permitted mergers that literally create monopolies, right? Um, And there's no other legislation on the planet, at least when it comes to larger established economies, that would permit such a merger. So like, that's where we're coming from. And I think that it's from that starting point, I think the public awareness and interest in this merger is very optimistic. And I hope that we can continue to build off of that and that we can use it as an opportunity to build awareness. Okay. No, certainly there's some more dialogue on these issues and, and the work you've all been doing have, have clearly contributed to that. Why don't, why don't we conclude with this? You know, your critics argue that, you know, everything's just fine and that the law is already well positioned to address competition, even in, in these kinds of sectors. You've suggested, suggested that what we need are changes so that the next time 
if the, the, assuming that in this instance things go through, uh, perhaps things are different. So, what are the the reforms? Would you say that are needed to help foster a more competitive environment in Canada? I can start with talking about um, our ideas on data and privacy. I think one thing that's definitely not fine is consumer privacy, and we see this coming up again and again. And I don't think that privacy laws alone are going to solve the issue. Commercial privacy laws usually have very limited scope. They're usually balanced against business justifications, and they can't account for market power. And when market power comes to play in consumer privacy questions, that's a really complicated area with different, with complicated interactions and complicated consequences. And I think we really need to think more deeply about that. And not just consumer privacy, but really data in general. What is the role that data has in our economy? And how do we conceptualize it? There's been some ideas, for example, of seeing data as an essential facility, sim similar to train tracks, that things that are very foundational infrastructures of our society or resources in our society. And I'm not arguing that that's what we need to do, but that's one avenue that we need to think about more deeply and actually reviewing the act and reviewing the consequences of these market and business conducts would give us the chance to really think more deeply about those questions. It's a great point to raise the data consumer privacy related issues. Are there others uh, that you would focus on? I'm like, can we record for another hour? Um, I'll give you I'll give you a couple on my list and then I'll turn it to Robin. I mean, look, there are some zombie ideas out there that aren't going away anytime soon, like that the Bureau should be able to do market studies. I also want to shout out the Bureau. They put forward a very fiery, comprehensive um, statement of ideas in response to a senator-led invite-only consultation that concluded in December. So there is no shortage of kind of maybe more mechanical ideas when it comes to competition in Canada. Something lately, one of the many bees in my bonnet is related to, you know, uh, the lack of transparency for consumers on personalized pricing, self-preferencing. Um, are these, one, we have to ask ourselves whether these are fundamentally anti-competitive behaviors or how we test them, uh, how we see them under the act, but also, you know, what consumers are entitled to. Can they turn off these things? Can How do you access the best possible price? And um, are these functions discriminatory? Are they okay? Again, I'm very worried about a future that we're kind of on the cusp of where prices are highly variable and not static for anything. And it makes it really hard to, yeah, budget and also just price match in this, in this, you know, digital first uh, era. So those are a couple of things on my mind and uh, Robin, I'll toss it over to you. Just to echo Vass, I think that there are, so many specific changes that we could make to the act today in order to improve things. And I would echo a lot of the uh, ideas that we've already mentioned here, like the efficiencies defense, like reevaluating how we actually identify anti-competitiveness within the act. We've talked about market studies. We've talked about um, the role of privacy in competition. Um, we've talked about data, we've talked about these new forms of technology, personalized pricing, algorithmic pricing. Um, I think that um, there are also these, I think that there's also a lot more thinking that needs to happen, not only on what needs to change with the act, and I'm kind of pulling from what Anne is talking about here, but also I think more broadly, what do we want from our economy and our society 
from an economic standpoint? And what role do we see competition playing in that? Because I think fundamentally competition law um, has the power to take us to a economy that is more just and more fair, right? And I think that can manifest in many different ways. Um, a lot of times we talk about inequality, but I think this also refers to a quality of opportunity, right? So allowing entrepreneurs more access to markets so that we can have more diversity of products and, and choices and, and what have you. Um, so the these questions uh, require us to think about our future and think about what kind of economy we want to be living in and then reverse engineering a competition law that accomplishes that. And this really drills down to um, the purpose statement of the act, which is an area that we're seeing increased debate about, and there's a lot at stake in that debate. So a lot of folks that are aligned with the more corporate um, perspective want to see a competition law that's more anchored in efficiency. And some even argue that the only consideration of competition law should be efficiency. That is, competition's only role should be to promote economic efficiency. And this aligns with the corporate interest because that often translates into profit, right? But competition can also be wielded to create other social outcomes. And these outcomes need not be in conflict with each other, right? We can have efficiency and fairness. We can have efficiency and privacy. So um, this is why I think we need more broad democratic engagement on competition policy and more public awareness. I'm sorry, I wanted to chase very briefly and sort of just say, I think the biggest question for Canada when it comes to competition right now, other than who is going to have the B-A-L-L-S's to be the political champion on this, I spelled out balls, um, is whether we're on the cusp of an evolution in competition law or a revolution. Um, and we can flip a coin on that. Um, but given that it's been so long since we've made modifications to this really important piece of legislation, and it, it feels like the window of opportunity might not come again for quite some time, it's really important that we get it right, but also commit ourselves to kind of keeping it, keeping it uh, fresh and refreshing it as needed instead of putting it back on a shelf for 36 more years, because, you know, we might be the go slow status quo cohort in 36 years. And uh, we're trying to avoid that. Just joking. Okay. Well, we, we may not know who the political champion might be, but we definitely know who the policy champions are. And it's quite clear you've emerged as, as those champions, which is, which is really awesome. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and uh, helping to hopefully spark even further discussion more broadly about some of these issues. Thank you. Thanks so much. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron Leboy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca.
I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.